Hello, and welcome to Adaptivist Live, the Atlassian Ecosystem Podcast. My name is Ryan Spilkin, and this is Episode 4, Styling Style Guides. Joining me today are Adaptivist Learning and Development Consultants, Krista Parker. Hi, everyone. And Renee Brown. Hey, guys. And also joining us today is an icon of style, Matthew Stubblefield. I love it when you lie to me, Ryan. <laughs> and we have an anecdote to share with you before we begin today. So, Renee, tell us tell us the story. Okay, so um, it just it turns out that all four of us have um, managed to work at the same institution, though not all at the same time. So, I've worked with Ryan and Matthew, and Krista's also worked with Ryan and Matthew. And um, at this institution, Krista worked there before I did. And then um, I came in and inherited Krista's style guide. So I think Krista and I probably have very similar um, understandings of what a style guide is because the first style guide that I ever really worked with a lot was actually written by Krista. So There's nothing like learning from the best. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you go that way, Ryan, because I was thinking... This this just means we know exactly who to blame. <laughs> what? <laughs> Don't tell Krista. Wait. All right. That was not intended for, to throw Krista under the bus. <laughs> we don't do that. All right. Intentionally. So a new tradition on Adaptivist Live is what we're calling the Thunderbolt Round. Where we're going to take just about a minute a person to discuss um, what comes to mind when we hear the word style. So I'm going to go ahead and go first, as is on my want. So when I think of the word style, what comes to mind is the the school of art that uh, that was established by a guy named Piet Mondrian called De Stijl. And it's this, it's, it's like, it's the artist who works with grids. And it, so it's lots of black lines and then pr- bright boxes of primary colors. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, but there's a whole there is a whole school of design that's based around that pattern, and it's so so distinct stylistically that you can't help but I mean, if you know what it is, you, it jumps out at you every time you see it. And I'm a big fan because I tend to I really enjoy geometric patterns and artwork. Um, so when I think of style, I think of De Stijl, Renee. Uh, yeah, so when I think of style, I think of Project Runway and avant-garde fashion challenges and Tim Gunn saying, make it work, make it work. So that's what I think of when I think of style. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Matthew? So for me, when I think of style, I think of this particular barber shop here in Springfield called Hudson Hawk. And uh, it's a place that I always sort of thought, I am not stylish enough to go to that barbershop. <laughs> that is a place for people who, who dress better and, and actually know what they're doing when they get up in the morning. Uh, but I found out the guy who, who started it went to the same high school as me. And so, you know, I said to myself, you know, if it's, you know, he's from the North side, he's from the same place, same neighborhood I'm from, I, you know, maybe I could check this place out. And as it turns out, his style is maybe not as inaccessible as I thought. And so that was kind of a, a nice realization and talking to him about it and, and what his priorities are and how he views style. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be as foreign as we might think it you know, is. Nice. It's a, step, it's a step in the right direction, Matthew, down the yellow brick road of fashion. It's about as far as I go as that one step. <laughs> Krista, what have you got when it comes to style? Um, I think about 
Japanese street fashion, um, which I don't know if the, I don't remember which, I think it's the Harajuku district was really big several years ago. Um, I actually read that the magazine that would kind of chronicle a lot of that has, has kind of shut down recently. But um, I think about that. And then also kind of along the same line as, as the Japanese street fashion is cosplay, because I know several cosplayers um, who make all their own costumes, who do all of that kind of costume design. And I think that a lot of that kind of goes hand in hand. It's kind of this whole just sort of cultural, I don't know, phenomenon, which is, is really cool. And part of the, the street fashion and the cosplay is not just the design that goes into what they're doing, but they're kind of bringing that character to life. Um, and it's definitely a persona that, that they take on both in just the street fashion. And then of course, if they're dressing up as a, a character. So that's what I think of. Very cool. Krista. I always find it really interesting when people cosplay and mix uh, fan fandoms you know, I always yes. think those are really clever. So Krista, why did you make your first style guide? Why did we need that? Oh gosh. Um, and you well, can't say, cause I told you to. <laughs> uh, well, with a, with a wiki, um, you've got a lot of people who are editing and creating content. So it's very easy with so many different voices to have a lot of different things going on. So to kind of control that and provide that consistent, look and feel, provide the consistency in how things are spelled, provide the consistency in how images are handled. Um, it was just a good idea to, to start putting some of those formatting guidelines uh, and non-negotiables in, into a, a, a document that the writers could follow. I think it helped, especially, you know, like I said, with the, all of the different people editing so they kind of know what to do it also helps as training um because new users new writers can come on and kind of say oh okay i know i know how to do this this is how it was done before so it kind of provides a good guideline um to train people who are new as well so you start with the the essentials of just font sizing colors maybe that come from a, a marketing guide but but do you come across things that you didn't expect when you're building a style guide, like you, everything is defined and then, oh, now we need to address this aspect of style. Oh, yeah. I think that always uh, a style guide is a living, breathing, constantly evolving document. You know, a style guide is not meant to be static because you're always going to be coming. I mean, the same way that we have new technology constantly evolving, we have the style guide to address that technology if we're writing about technology that it needs to evolve. You know, there's always going to be something that like, you do it one way, Ryan, and I do it the other way, another way. And we need to come to a compromise because we want to sound like one cohesive group and not 14,000 voices screaming at the top of our lungs. Sort of a simple or, or silly example of this is I was writing a page earlier this week. I put a screenshot in it and I put it at what in my head is still the standard for image sizes of 600 pixels. And then I realized it looked kind of small and I checked with the group and it was like, oh, wait, 600 pixels was our standard when our monitors were 17 inches. But computers have changed and screen sizes have changed. People are using you know, 24 and 27 and 30 inch monitors now. Our screenshots could probably be a little bit larger than they used to be. And so, yeah, Renee's totally right. Things change and we've got we've to make sure we're keeping, keeping these things updated as time goes on. 
So what are some secrets to keeping a style guide fresh? Paying attention, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like uh, you need a couple or uh, a lot of people who are detail oriented so that um, when these things do change, you're noticing and not just, well, 600 is the way that I've always done it. And so 600 is the way that I'm go. So flexibility as well. You need to be flexible and uh, oriented towards detail. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd also, you know, just checking in, kind of reviewing things, checking and seeing how content looks in different mediums. Um, you might even have, I mean, mobile is another thing to think about just because people might be pulling that up. How does that look in mobile? And um, just to keep that in mind. So, yeah, I think just keeping aware. I remember going in and reviewing things uh, almost daily <laughs> to see what was going on. Do you develop a separate section for mobile or do you count on devices being responsive? Do you, do you count on responsive design to keep the style consistent? I think it depends on what you're writing the style guide for. Yep. If you're writing it for like a mobile app of your website, then yeah, you're going to want to have a mobile section. But if it's just your website on a mobile it's less important that you, you know, have a special mobile section for it. Like I had asked her, <laughs> I had asked earlier this week, uh, Renee and I are working on the same document. And so I asked her, which it strikes me now as like the nerdiest styling question. So what is the difference between heading three and heading four to you? Because these <laughs> kind of interchangeably, and I want to make sure we're on the same page in our heading definitions. So like Renee, as you're approaching uh, a page, like how do you define different heading levels? What's the type of content we should be using there? And you know, how do you differentiate a document and break that up a little bit? Well, uh, it kind of depends on the size of the document because actually one of the things that you were uh, asking me about was uh, I had been just pulling content from a much larger document and just pulling it over and throwing it into pages and breaking it into much smaller pieces of documentation. So um, in a situation like that, I mean, you kind of want to just always have a hierarchy in mind. And in a situation like that, I was using, you know, heading four, when, but when I say I was using it, it was like that was the second level technically but because it was from such a much larger document that uh, kind of had to be broken down like that. So basically it is things that are important, sections that are important, but are not main ideas. So it's the same thing that you do when you write a paper in like the sixth grade and they teach you how to outline your paper topic. You're doing the exact same thing mm -hmm. with your um, different uh, instructions basically. One of the ways I often think about it on Confluence pages is that the page title is actually my heading one. Um, and I think about it in terms of how screen readers process. So if you are vision impaired and you use a screen reader, I, I typically think of heading two as being the first heading I actually want to use on a page because the page title is like heading one to me on Confluence. Yeah, and if you look at Confluence, it does look like that. Like heading one is as big as uh, like your page title. And so you don't really want to use that for, you know, kind of the, the introduction to your page because that is your heading. What about some things? I, I mentioned my, my great ennui when it comes to, to image sizes earlier. 
But Krista, you did a lot of screenshotting for some stuff recently. When you're when you're adding images to to Confluence, sort of what's your process? What's your thoughts in terms of of making sure that this is going to be readable and, and very distinct from the rest of the text? Well, when I do a screenshot, I try to capture exactly what you need to interact with as well as give some context to it. So I keep that in mind. And then if the screenshot needs to show several examples, you know, you want to make that larger. Whereas some things, if you're just getting a menu, you can have that be a little smaller. Um, When I was doing some of the recent uh, work that I did, I kind of stuck between like 200 to 300 pixels and then like 600 to 900, but it depended on the, on the screenshot itself. Um, and I, I like to do a border because sometimes it can float. The images can float with the background text. So that kind of helps it stand out and, um, you know, brings your eye to that, that portion. And it's clear that that's a screenshot, not just more uh, content on the page. Yeah, that's something I was going to say, too. That border uh, around an image is often very important to help pre- people know what is actually an image. Sometimes you can capture a window and it already has a distinct border around it, and then it's not a big deal. But for the most part, you want to add a border to images. So what are some strategies that you two use to like check content? Krista mentioned managing a wiki earlier. So like with all of these people editing different pages, how do we keep on top of that? I think that just taking the time, you know, if if part of your role is keeping track of making sure the content is consistent, going in and especially if it's uh, customer user facing, spending some time going in and making sure, um, providing training also on on what to do um, as far as using the style guide and so people are aware that 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 document or that content exists and they, that there is something that they know that they should be following and, and offering help if they need it and they're unsure. Let's, let's talk about the essentials of a style guide. What are the big pieces of scaffolding that we have to get in place to make one work? Um, I was just going to say any kind of any specific grammar suggestions or non-negotiables in terms of, how you use certain punctuation. Um, there are some people, for example, who do not like the the Oxford comma or the serial comma. They don't want to use it. That is ridiculous. Those people are wrong. <laughs> Heathens. Heathens. Just. <laughs> yes. Um, and then also spelling, um, especially for international uh, companies. That's something to keep in keep in mind in terms of. Um, you know, how are you going to, to handle that? And do you need that to be consistent or are you okay with it being different? Um, and then also in terms of, especially documentation uh, or user guides, how, how does the user know and how do you help highlight what, um, how they interact with, with certain items like a button? You know, do you bold it? Do you italicize it, underline, things like that, and, and keeping that consistent. So when someone goes into a page, they know what to expect. Yeah, I was thinking about um, exporting. So like in Confluence, mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to style your export. And you can do this in, in you know, regular Confluence, uh, styling through, uh, um, you know, CSS and XML and things like that. Um, and actually, you know, you can you can style your Confluence pages as well using CSS, uh, which is pretty easy to do now uh, through the the Space Admin. It used to be a lot harder when I started working with Confluence. You had to actually edit the CSS file, which was over five thousand lines long, and it was 
just stupid painful. Um, but it's not too bad now. And you can make some really, really cool pages in Confluence. Um, but you can do that for your exports too and, and make your PDFs look a certain way and include different uh, like header and logo images in it. And then there's add-ons like Scroll Office to, to export. So you, you've really got a, a tremendous amount of flexibility uh, with you know styling even those things, those things that are going to be leaving your Atlassian tools. And just last week, I was working with an add-on called Exporter for Jira, which lets you really simply set up an export template in Microsoft Word uh, to uh, um, do exports to PDF or Word or Excel or whatever uh, from Jira, and and bring you know identified individual fields out. You don't need to be a programmer to do it, which is good news for me because uh, I'm not. Um, but uh, but you can do some really really cool things uh, with the Atlassian stuff, and I think that branding, like we were talking about earlier, it even if it's just for internal use, you know, it really helps to unify uh, things across your organization. Uh, helps people, you know, again, they can pick up these documents much more quickly because it's everything matches. Um, so you know, look around, look around the marketplace, think about what you can be doing because there's a lot of tools out there to help you. So style isn't just for our documentation. It's not just for Confluence. We can actually bring a style, stylistic approach to Jira. Matthew, you said that you had some, some ideas about styling Jira. Can you share those with us? Yeah, I think a big part of a, the purpose of a style guide in general is to make it easier to browse content, to pick things up quickly. You know, when every Confluence space sort of has a similar structure and the pages have a similar layout and you know, headings are used consistently and links are used consistently. That really helps. And Jira can benefit from the same approach. So if you've got a consistent approach to, for instance, naming schemes, where you know projects are named a certain way and they're categorized a certain way, and you're using punctuation a certain way, and not just for project names, but for your, your fields, where it's easy for people to intuitively understand what they are. In terms of the visuals, uh, that understanding can be eased by keeping that consistent. Like one thing I've done, I've got a couple of uh, folders of different icons, just little free icon packs I got from Smashing Magazine. They've got just tons of these available online. And one of our other consultants, Monica Antos, turned me on to this. And so I downloaded a few of them and I noticed that some of them are square and some of them are round. And so I just standardized on using uh, square icons for parent issues and round icons for subtasks. It's, it's really helpful when you've got a unique icon for every single issue type because we really shouldn't have too many issue types to begin with. But, you know, as you start to get up there in particular, when you've got a different icon for each one, that makes it easy to differentiate them. Even if they're so tiny, you can't really make out what they are. Just having different ones helps. But the shape, that silhouette is really, really beneficial. So when I can glance through Issue Navigator and really easily see, oh, these are the, the parent issues and these are subtasks. That type of thing just makes it a little bit faster to navigate, a little bit faster to work through. And uh, um, keeping that consistent is really going to help users understand. Um, I think that's one of the big complaints we get about Jira is like, oh, you know, what's a, what's a subtask versus what's a, a parent issue? And it's like, we, we can do some things with our style to help people with this. Matthew, that's some great advice. So that's all the time we have for today. I want to remind everyone that if you have suggestions for future episodes of the podcast, or if you have any comments for us, please be sure to visit adaptivist.com slash learn, or send us an email at learn at adaptivist.com.
Also, we're hiring. So if you're looking for a career in the exciting world of the Atlassian ecosystem, visit joinadaptivist.com. I want to once again thank my, my guests today, Renee Brown. Thank you. Krista Parker. Thank you. And Matthew Stubblefield. Thank you all so much. And we'll see you next time on Adaptivist Live. Cheers, everyone. It, it sounds like you guys are like announcing some smooth jazz. Oh, yeah. The smoothest <laughs> jazz. The best kind of jazz. <laughs> <laughs>